So welcome back to the Uncensored Wizard podcast. Um, for those of you who are watching with video, this is a new setup. Uh, you might just be listening with audio, but I have um, set up a temporary video recording space in my uh, in my house, and I'm going to give this a shot to see how how it turns out. I uh, so far I like what I'm seeing. So um, if this is something that I can make work and is feasible and doesn't uh, eat up too much of my time each week. Um, doing i'll continue to do video and not just audio podcast and hopefully get some of this shared on other platforms like youtube um and some spaces like that but hey welcome back i want to start off first by saying thank you to everyone who's been following this show um if you're new to the uncensored wizard please make sure to go and uh, subscribe and like um this episode share it with your friends that you think it might resonate with i've been so surprised by how much um, this has resonated with so many people. And uh, I am grateful and thankful for all the feedback that I've been getting and really appreciate it. All right, deep breath. Uh, This episode, I am going to be talking about something that, um, a topic that I've been interested in for many, many years and, um, and something that I've been talking a lot about over the past few years, something that hasn't been altogether well received by the church or by um people who know me uh and um you know i i started saying some things about uh the time and the season that we live in back in 2014 and people i think thought i was crazy and so then um i kept saying some things about where we were at and then i stopped saying some things about my opinion um, of where we were at in our historical moment because I thought, well, maybe I am crazy. But here we are in 2023, and I thought, what better time to go all in on uh, some of my opinions and observations that I've made. So this episode is about the apocalypse. We're going to be talking about the end of the world. And, um, you know, I, I don't I don't really know exactly um, where we end up in this episode because... I've got a lot of thoughts I want to share, and a little bit of this is uh, is pretty extemporaneous. So, I guess the first place to start is uh, is just to go on record. It's 2023, and uh, I just want to go on record and and start this episode by saying that I believe we are we are coming out of an apocalypse. I I feel like um, uh, when I say coming out, that doesn't mean we're out of it. I think we're still in it, but I feel like we have been in an apocalypse for about the past seven years. And the world as we knew it has ended and we are we are in the dawning of a new age. And at this point, it's probably important that I give um, my first sort of disclaimer and and say that, yeah, this episode is going to be a little bit woo woo. All right. So um, in the previous episodes, I've talked a lot about my deconstruction and my journey of faith and um and my experiences thus far that has really really resonated with folks i've talked about the purpose for this podcast the reason behind the title for this podcast and you know you've you've heard a lot of the uncensored part of the podcast this episode you're going to hear a little bit more of the wizarding part of (laughs) of the podcast so this is for the spirited people the spiritual people the wizards among us um, those who are willing to uh, uh, to kind of engage in uh, in some conversation that some would probably consider to be a little woo woo, if you will. 
So, um, my, my, my story with apocalypse, I mean, it's, it's no wonder that I'm interested in the apocalypse. My, my church of origin uh, was a Pentecostal church and, you know, we as Pentecostals felt as though we were, uh, given the gift of the spirit, um, as end time people, people of the end of the world, that this was sort of the final outpouring that was prophesied by the prophet Joel, um, a continuation of Acts chapter two that, uh, that sort of took over the, um, the Western hemisphere first, now largely the Southern hemisphere as well, but the Western hemisphere in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, my particular church of origin was Church of God, which experienced a Pentecostal outpouring in the Appalachian Mountains of Tennessee and Western North Carolina in the late 1800s is, is when our organization started forming and kind of seeking God. And I, I say that because a lot of times uh, the origins of Pentecost are often linked to the Azusa Street Revival only. And what was happening in Appalachia in the late 1800s before Azusa Street happens in the early 1900s is largely not talked about. So uh, that's why, you know, one reason why I kind of bring that up. Um, so the Church of my Origin believed we were people of the end times. <clears throat> so that made, you know, a huge impact on me in the church and growing up and, and what was taught and what was uh, what was sort of... Um, elaborated on a lot and then you know there was all of this sort of dispensational theology that emerged in the 80s and early 90s that you know not just in the pentecostal church but took the evangelical church by storm and so um you know all that was going on at the same time my dad who was a baptist uh his church of origin was was southern baptist my grandmother on his side and their family were, were Southern Baptist. My father uh, joined the Pentecostal church when he married my mother. And my dad was a very smart man in any other world with different circumstances than what he was born into. Uh, he would have probably been a Ph.D. in theology. But uh, my dad got really interested in um, eschatology, the uh, study of the end times, the apocalypse and all that kind of stuff. So. You know, it's no wonder that this has been something that has always fascinated me. <clears throat> um, when I went to Bible college and I learned even more about what apocalypse is in Scripture and in in theology in general, um, it really um, kind of uh, ignited that interest and passion in apocalypse even more. And, um, you know, I said at the beginning of this episode that I had started talking about apocalypse quite a bit in my churches when I was pastoring back in 2014. Um, I started, you know, in 2014 was around the time I, I first said uh, to my congregation, we, we are headed for apocalyptic times. And you know, when I said that, I didn't mean the typical doom and gloom stuff I'd heard all my life growing up about the end of the world and the tribulation and all that. And maybe there's another podcast in there for that sometime to kind of explain my eschatology. But suffice to say, I, I, I don't necessarily believe in like a rapture of the church and a seven year tribulation and sort of this dispensational uh, 
finality to things. Now, I do believe in, I just said, I think we've been in a seven-year apocalypse. I do believe in seasons, weeks of years, all that kind of stuff is um, is definitely something that seems to be handed to us from ancient literature and by ancient people. But, um, but I started saying that in 2014, that we're headed for apocalyptic times. And then in 2015, uh, the Trump uh, campaign started. And um, I had been, you know, a lot of things led up to this. I uh, led up to me kind of having this this sense about the apocalypse. I had read Chris Hedges book, Empire of Illusion, um, which if you've ever read any of Chris Hedges stuff, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, you should. And you should probably start with Empire of Illusion. Although I almost wonder if I read it today, how I'd feel about it, because so much of what Hedges was saying in that book has happened in the last seven to ten years. Um, but I had been, you know, Empire of Illusion caught my eye. The basic argument of Empire of Illusion, uh, Chris Hedges um, articulates a belief that we had become um, a people that were largely illiterate and um, not in the sense of not being able to read, but not really understanding what we were seeing and and being able to um, discern the difference between reality and spectacle uh, Hedges felt had become very difficult for us and so the book kind of outlines these different illusions that had emerged as substitutes for reality so for instance a large portion of the book is spent with him talking about the pornography industry and how uh, we had um, kind of bought into the illusion of love the illusion of it not the reality of it uh, a couple of other things he talks he starts the book off start by talking about you know the worldwide uh, excuse me world wrestling federation now um, just wwe but uh, he talks about how that was sort of like this way in which our culture was projecting the archetypes um, of spectacle um, you know we would take something real like a preacher or a tax man or uh, you know, in early wrestling days, or a, a Soviet, um, a person from the Soviet Union, um, and we would we would kind of caricaturize them, and 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 Hedge's argument is that basically, as a, as a society, WWE, if you will, is becoming real life. The spectacle is 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 on the main stage of the world, and 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 we're uh, too illiterate to see what's going on. And then when Donald Trump ran for president, I was like, holy shit. Like, man, Chris Hedges was on to something. Like, he was really, really on to something. And so then in September of 2015, when Donald Trump, uh, you know, he got saved. He got born again. Um, and then I saw, like, my, my, my social media feed was, like, filled with all these posts of, like, Donald Trump, you know, in this in this room with all these pastors. And they got their hands on him and they're praying fervently. You know, this guy still owns casinos and strip clubs, and, and it's just, personality-wise, I mean, I just, growing up in the church, it was beyond me, like, why they embraced him. Um, but please don't don't turn this podcast off yet, if you, if you did, and if you do, because this really isn't about that, uh, necessarily, because I feel like Trump is a symptom of, uh, of our times, not necessarily um, the, the, the problem. Uh, although what he represented, I feel like has become and in and, and is a cancer. So I think it was September of 2015. Donald Trump got saved. He got born again. 
And at that point, I was all in. I was like, yo, we, we are in an apocalypse. We, we, this is it. We are in an apocalypse. So I, I think it's probably good now to, to kind of you know, talk about what I mean by that when I say that we are in an apocalypse and what an apocalypse is. I had a couple of, um, of moments in my, um, in my ministry career and in my time as a college student, a Bible college student. I, I, for those of you who don't know, I earned two degrees. Uh, both of them um, with uh, specific studies in the Bible. I didn't really go the theology route. I didn't go the pastoral care route. I went the Bible route. Uh, I've always been a lover of the Bible. Um, I'm not a I'm not a biblicist. Um, I don't think the Bible is God. I don't think it's even the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God, not the Bible. Um, but I do love the Bible. I think the Bible is amazing. Um, I think the Bible is mysterious. I think the Bible has things in it that we ought to pay attention to, uh, things that are very important and things that uh, uh, could be quite meaningful to us if we would take the time to actually examine them on their own terms and not try to fit them into our own sort of um, into our own sort of modern presuppositions. So um, the first sort of big revelation I had in Bible college was when I learned what the word um, apocalypse meant in the first place. Uh, I did not even realize when I went to Bible college in the early 2000s, you know, I was completely naive. I did not realize that um, the book of Revelation, the word revelation in Greek is is the word for apocalypse. I knew because I'd heard the term apocalypse. I'd heard the word. So I knew that like there was um, I knew there was something about the end times that was apocalyptic. But in my mind, apocalypse just meant you know, like everything blowing up, the end of the world, destruction of everything, the end of time, which as a kid freaked me the hell out and still does. Like, I can't, I don't want to talk about the end of time. That makes my head hurt. So like, you know, even processing that, like what in the world does all of that mean? Uh, it was like really hard. Um, so then when I got to Bible college and I learned that revelation meant apocalypse and that apocalypse means to unveil something, which I'm like, no, no shit. Like a revelation. That makes sense. Right. Revelation. Uh, it's it's a revealing. But in my mind, I had always been taught and thought about revelation as sort of being um, the revealing of how the seven year tribulation is going to play out or the revealing of, you know, the signs of the times or whatever. And obviously, that's, I think, kind of part of it. Um that's why we have apocalyptic literature. It's ancient people giving us, you know, the weather report, if you will. Jesus said, you know, the seasons, but you don't know the seasons of the son of man. Uh, the ancients were trying to give us something through um, through the apocalyptic literature. Revelation is not the only apocalyptic book in Scripture. The book of Daniel is another one. And then you find apocalypses. Is that the right term? Uh, throughout uh, the New Testament, uh, Mark um, has an, an apocalypse mentioned. Um, and so, you know, there's all these various uh, texts about the apocalypse. But to think about it in terms of an unveiling, that apocalyptic times are when um, that which was hidden now comes to light. It's when the light is kind of shown on everything that was once in the dark. And yes, uh that is kind of the end of the world when you think about it. Um, if you've ever had an apocalyptic moment, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, that moment when you find out that um, 
someone you love, uh, someone you're committed to, um, doesn't, uh, love or share the same commitment to you. And they've been hiding that when that light comes on, it's an apocalypse. It's the end of the world, end of the world as you know it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's that doctor's report that comes back that you weren't expecting. You know, it's, uh, it's like, oh, by the way, in your body, you've been growing, you know, a tumor for who knows how long, but it was in the dark. You didn't know what was going on. And then all of a sudden, you know, and it's the end of the world as you know it. Everything changes in that moment. And so that's what apocalypse is. And I think one reason why learning that made me fall in love with it even more is because our lives are full of apocalypse. I mean, that's kind of like, like it's, it's in the context of apocalypse to me that the gospel seems like actual good news. Like, (laughs) um, you know, it, it, it is where the rubber meets the road and, uh, and and because God, uh, you know, is a truth teller, because the Holy Spirit can't help but tell the truth, he can't help but reveal the truth, you know, if you believe that God and the Spirit are at work in our current reality, then you have to have some appreciation for apocalypse because God is the one always shining the light, you know. Um, so that was kind of my first big revelation uh, when it comes to thinking about um, apocalypse, especially or not especially, but particularly within the context of um, of the biblical understanding of it. <clears throat> the second big sort of uh, revelation, ironically, uh, was when um, I began to understand biblical prophecy as being circular in nature and not linear in nature, right? And this is a big deal um, because I had always been raised to think about um, to think about prophecy as being linear. That is, the prophet would speak it and then centuries later or whenever later, the prophecy would be fulfilled. And, you know, when I was younger, I always thought it was like centuries. I mean, what good's a prophecy that's going to take place tomorrow? Is that really a prophecy? Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the way I thought about it. So for instance, Isaiah's prophecy, um, that a young maiden will bring forth a son and, and then later on in the Septuagint, uh, it's kind of a a mistranslation, you know, maiden was turned into the word virgin in Greek. And so a lot of, uh, first century Jews believe there was a prophecy that there will be a virgin birth. And then when Jesus was born, the gospel writers a hundred years after the fact that Jesus was born comes back and they tell the story of his birth and they make the claim that he was born of a virgin and that that was the fulfillment of Isaiah. And so, um, but then I went to Bible college and it was like, uh, no, the young, the, the child being born to a maiden is actually a prophecy that was meant for them at that time. And it was kind of a prophecy of hope because they were facing destruction because of the Assyrians coming in and conquering. And basically, um, basically God tells Isaiah to tell the king, Hey, don't fret. God can, God can birth a new leader, can birth a, a savior for the nation among, for many of our young maidens. 
And so then it's like this conflict arises in me, like, okay, so, so is, uh, did the prophecy take place in Isaiah's time or did the prophecy wait until the birth of Jesus and that that was the fulfillment of the prophecy? And that's kind of the linear thinking, right? That's the linear thinking about, um, about, about prophecy and, but but then, you know, as I begin to study scriptures more and I begin to understand the role of the prophet and even kind of as a pastor walk in that a little bit, I don't really think you can be a pastor worth anything if you're not willing to be a bit prophetic. Um, and I didn't say pathetic. <laughs> There's plenty of those. I said prophetic. Uh, I begin to understand that prophecy was much more than just kind of future telling. Right. And more importantly, the prophets seemed to be the people who were looking at the times and were interpreting the seasons and were literate about what was happening while everybody else was kind of illiterate about it or ignorant of it. Prophets were kind of the truth tellers. And then <clears throat> this came full circle. Uh, a great word picture based on what I'm about to tell you. It came full circle when I went and heard Water Brueggemann speak. Um, and during that, Lecture, and I, I was familiar with Brueggemann to some degree. I'd read some of his stuff. His textbooks were used in our classroom at, at, at Gardner Webb. But I went and I heard him as a student at Gardner Webb. Uh, he was speaking at another school, I think in Anderson, South Carolina. But at any rate, he made the statement and he said, Prophecy is not linear, prophecy is circular. And, um, and that it's cyclical in that. The, a prophecy may be given and there may be so much truth to it and so much insight to it that it not only takes place in the generation of the prophecy, but it is fulfilled throughout history, right? Like at other times. And in this case, taking the example from Isaiah, maybe there was a fulfillment in Isaiah's time, but then there was a fulfillment later. Um, and when you look at the New Testament writers, it seems that they 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 kind of understood this um, a bit because they would go back and draw from the prophecies as fulfillments or as references to things in the in the New Testament. OK, and they would not have necessarily been ignorant of how those things have been fulfilled before. And so prophecy uh, in his very nature is sort of is sort of circular rather than linear. That is to say that the prophets, what they are saying is that they're speaking to the cycles and the rhythms and the realities of the world that are happening around us, but that we're often ignorant of. And, um, and so then what is said in one time in history may also mean uh, or carry the same significance or similar significance in another part of history. That it's not just spoken and fulfilled, but that it's, it's a truth that sort of resonates and and um, and 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 shines a light on the various sort of seasons we find our in, ourselves in as humans throughout history. So, um, so I do think that that's those were two big important moments in my journey that affect the way that I think about apocalypse and that I think about prophecy now so back to what i was saying um 
I do think we've been in a, in a time of apocalypse. I think that the spirit has been revealing things. I think that for many of us, that's why we left the church because we were like, oh, shit, this is, you know, it's like, oh, wow, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. Uh, for me, there was a little bit of this moment of like, who are these people? What is happening? Um, why is, you know, why why are these things happening? And, but now looking back, I feel like, uh, and I b- strongly believe that it was just the light being shined on things that, that we just had not really been paying attention to. Um, so alongside sort of this kind of worldwide apocalypse, which, you know, a lot of people, when the pandemic happened, they started saying, oh, you know, this is an apocalypse. I heard someone say it was a dress rehearsal for apocalypse. I heard some people call it a mini apocalypse. To me, the pandemic was just the climax to an apocalyptic season that began in 2015 with the uh, coronation of Trump by um, by Christian leaders here in America. So while that worldwide apocalypse was going on, I, I, I think there was also a um, uh, that that was accompanied by a great falling away. And, and I know that that's always sort of thought of as something terrible that, you know, you don't want to be part of the great falling away. I'm of the opinion it's kind of inevitable, inevitable for some of us. Um, I think some of us were meant to be shaken out and, uh, um, and, and placed somewhere else and in a different context. So I do think there was a great falling away um, in the church in America. I'm not going to speak for the rest of the world. I'm going to speak from my own social context. And I've been reading Brad Jerzak's book, um, Out of the Embers. And in that book, Jerzak just goes all in and says, you know, he believes categorically that the mass exodus that has happened in the church, you know, over the past several years, past decade, um, that falling away, if you will, he just goes ahead and gives it a title. He calls it the Great Deconstruction um, proper. And, and you know, he, he basically puts it as a moment in history, in church history, uh, that is as significant as the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, but in the opposite direction, that this was the Great Deconstruction. <clears throat> and, you know, he goes all in on that. Brian Zond, in the foreword of the book, um, comments also on on. Jerzak's going all in on that phrase and I think I think Jerzak is right and I'm, I'm going all in on it too we are we are um, we are seeing and we have been seeing what can only be described as the great deconstruction a, a mass exodus from the church um, the pandemic it's kind of weird the pandemic I think sort of gave people who were who had their foot out the door like me it kind of gave them permission to go ahead and get out and so uh, so that's so that's what I did. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, now 2023 uh, is a time to start thinking about where we are. And I feel like um, that we are in uh, a season of newness and that we are moving into uh, sort of the end. Um, the end times of the end times, if you will. And that doesn't mean things are necessarily not going to be bad or get worse. Uh, it just means that. Um, to me, it means that we're at a place where as a people, we have a little bit better perspective of where we are and what has actually been happening. I don't think I've, cause I've talked to people and I've talked to several of my friends and, you know, just kind of, uh, pitch this idea is like, you know, I'm just going all in. I think we're in, we've been in an apocalypse and 
it's funny how many of those people were like, yeah, I agree with you. And I had um, a conversation with a friend uh, earlier this week. And, uh, you know, his statement to me was that you don't always know you're in an apocalypse when you're in it. And that is so true. If you've ever went through something that was just completely life altering, you know, there's a lot of factors. You're in survival mode. Um, you're you're confused. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what's going on. And so there is uh, sort of this um, disorienting uh, sense to de- to deconstruction to do to deconstruction and to apocalyptic uh, moments. And you don't always know that you're in them, you know, until you get to a certain point and then you're like, you know, that, that's what's going on because revelations reveal all kinds of stuff. They reveal what you're made of. They reveal who's got your back. They reveal, you know, what's actually going on. Um, and they change your direction. They, they, they alter the course, um, of your, of, of our, of our lives. Uh, so I think that it's time to, to start thinking about new times. Um, but I thought it would be cool in this episode just to kind of talk about the um, cyclical nature of apocalypse and end of prophecy and, and, and kind of how I see that, if you'll just indulge me, how I see that playing out in, in various ways. So the first cycle that uh, I've, I, I want to talk about that has played out, and I know... I, I always get nervous talking about this stuff because there's so many people who are so much smarter than me and so much uh, so more read than me on this topic. But I've read enough to be interested in and and to kind of see this playing out. Um, And that is the cycle, the the mimetic cycle, uh, M-I-M-E-T-I-C. Maybe one day I'll get fancy and have like a board or PowerPoint up here or something. But for now, um, just thinking about. Uh, the the mimetic cycle that was laid out by Rene Girard. And this is a very elementary version of that, but uh, just give me a few seconds here and I'll kind of lay that out for you. So Rene Girard, um, he was a sociologist uh, at Notre Dame University. He was a Catholic. He kind of uh, operated in the intersections of sociology and theology. And he had this theory that said that basically humans are, um, we are, obsessed if you will with having what other people have and wanting what other people want this we we mind them we mimic them we want what other people have and we want what other people want and that's kind of how we um that's kind of how we form our desires right like desires don't typically sort of emerge from just this you know void if you will we want something because we've seen someone else have it and like it, and then we want it. And so uh, Gerard says that, you know, this is basically the cycle that runs in every society. And we, and, that's, and it causes competition um, amongst ourselves and jealousy. You know, Gerard says that the Ten Commandments shouldn't be necessarily read from the top down, but from the bottom up. Uh, the last one being... Thou shalt not want, and that's you know we we always say lust or whatever, but uh, the word is just want, you know that <laughs> thou shalt not want anything um, that you shouldn't want, and and then from that it's because the desire the want is what causes all kinds of problems, not just like 
personally or spiritually, but socially, it's that kind of communal want that that causes us the most uh, difficulty. And so, in the in in in, in Gerard's theory, um, we are competing against each other for what other people have and what they want, so that we can also have what they have, and uh, and so and then we also want what they want. But it's a it's a no win game because. Um, we're just never satisfied, right? And and we never get what we want. You know, you don't always get what you want. Sometimes you get what you need, I guess. But you don't always get what you want. And so Gerard says, you know, at this point, you know, the, the cycle, the mimetic cycle then sort of reaches this screeching climax in which there's confusion and there's clamoring and there's a web of chaos and a web of scandals because... As we compete, those are the mechanisms that we use: scandal, uh, and 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 uh, uh, trying to usurp one another to get these these things from one another. Um, and that you know, at the end of the day, when we can't do that, when we we can't get it, we're so blind to what's actually happening that we need a pop-off valve as a society, and we need someone to blame for the reason that we can't get all the things that we're wanting. And um, and so then as a society, we designate a a, um, a scapegoat we designate. And, you know, I, I've heard some people say a scapegoat can't be a group. I, I, again, I'm not a Gerard scholar, but to me, I think it plays out in groups as well. You know, it's like, well, you got to find somebody to blame. Well, it's the gays or it's the Republicans or it's the Democrats or it's BLM or it's whatever right like there's always got to be somebody to blame some group that we can look at and say they're the reason there's chaos they're the reason we can't have peace they're the reason we can't have what we want and so we scapegoat them and then you know we we crucify them we we kill them um and gerard then uh uses myth uh throughout history and cultures to talk about the myth of the scapegoat and how Nearly every mythology has a uh, prevailing scapegoat story. You know, even Oedipus, he uses Oedipus as an example, uh, as someone who, you know, um, sleeps with his own mother, uh, has her husband killed, doesn't even know that he did it. Um, and then you know, he becomes the scapegoat uh, for uh, all the woes of the city uh, and of, of the society. Um, there's other myths in history, you know, like there's this myth he mentions. And I, again, I'm not trying to be a scholar here, but he talks about a myth. I think it was African myth where, you know, there's the, this stoning of an old man who was like completely like uh, not really involved in any of the scandals, but became the scapegoat, became the target of everyone's ire. And so there's this cycle and then we scapegoat people or we scapegoat a person and there's this pop-off valve, right? It feels good and it always feels righteous, by the way, because the scapegoat, uh, you just as in the Old Testament, you're laying your sins on the scapegoat, right? Like you, you're, and that's a spiritual act. That's a, it's a religious act. It feels right. It feels right to lay your sins on someone else. <laughs> it, it righteouses you for, for uh, lack of a better word. And so there's sort of like this very powerful, um, euphoric, spiritual sense to it. And as a society, when we do this, we feel purged and we feel cleansed and we feel good. And so like there's this really, there's this climactic moment to the chaos. There's a pop-off valve in which we kill uh, the scapegoat and then everything's sort of relieved and the cycle just starts all over again, but in a very elementary way. 
Um, and I think that we've seen that cycle uh, play out. Um, and we're seeing it play out over and over and over again. So that's kind of one of the ways that I, I, I'm just trying to get us to think about ways in which we can think about the circular sort of understanding of history and of cycles and of the story of God. And, uh, and, and maybe we can figure out what to do with all that uh, a little better than what we figured out to do with the dispensational linear timeline idea of history and prophecy and apocalypse. Okay. Um, and you know, another, you know, everything in life is a cycle. Like I, I'm a bit of a naturalist. Um, I always feel like, you know, there's so much to be learned from nature, so much to be learned from, um, uh, just from the natural world. And I'm going to move this over here cause I want to talk about this in just a minute. Sorry. Um, so like even in nature, we see these cycles and Jesus references this Jesus, you know, he, 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 he tells the Pharisees, uh, you're so smart. You can tell the weather seasons, but you don't notice these other seasons. You don't, you're not catching a glimpse of, of, of the seasons of society of the son of man, which is by the way, is an apocalyptic word. Um, the son of man was sort of this uh, apocalyptic figure. The, the he's the he's the one in the fire. He's he's the one um, that when 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 the fires of apocalypse are blazing and refining and reforming, um, it's the son of man that sort of stands at the center of that as both judge and advocate. And so, uh, the natural world is another great example for us to look at and sort of see these cycles and see how things play out. Uh, I was introduced um, also this week, uh, not introduced, but reintroduced to a theory that um, <clears throat> that some of you may be familiar with is the the four turnings theory. And, it, you know, if you don't know what this is, just YouTube it like there's a whole wormhole you can go down. There's a book also that was written. Uh, I should probably look that up. Give me a second. Here. <laughs> uh, I'll go ahead and reference that since we're here. Uh, let's see here. Four turnings book. Uh, the fourth turning in American prophecy written by William Strauss and Neil Howe, Neil Howe and William Strauss uh, subtitle, what the cycles of history tell us about America's next rendezvous with destiny. I've not read this book, um, but I'm familiar with the theory enough to kind of talk about it here. And so if you'll just indulge me, I'll give you like the short five minute version of this particular theory that has emerged. Uh, and the fourth turning is this idea that history runs 80 year blocks, right? So like 80 year eras or epochs, uh, give or take 80 to 90 years. And that within these 80 years, um, um, within these 80 year time blocks, there are four individual, uh, turnings and they run about 20 years each, give or take a few years. And and these turnings, a better word will be seasons. So there's 80 years, for every 80 years of history, there are 20, um, four 20-year seasons. I'm going to get this right in a minute. There are four 20-year seasons. So um, we are currently in, in, a, in the fourth season of one of these cycles, according to this, this theory. So the first turning, the first season was um, was from 1946 uh, to 1964, and that is the first turning is always an era of what we call the um, you know the upbeat era. It's 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 a high era, and 
you know, this was uh, in America. This was after the end of World War II in 1946 and went till about 1964, ended with the JFK assassination. Uh, and so, and of course, this is according to uh, to the authors of that book. So the first turning is is this high upbeat era into World War II. There's um, there's a high degree of conformity. Um, you know, uh, you could actually, you know, work at a grocery store and own a house. Um, people have money. There was peace uh, in the world <laughs> relative to our understanding of peace. It's funny. We we have a empires have a way of doing that. I do believe America is an empire, uh, the United States of America. Um, and empires have a way of like talking about peace as if it only exists as if peace and, 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 and unrest only exists within their world. So, for instance, the Pax Numa, the Rome, the peace of Rome, you know, we, you've heard that term, you know, Rome had peace. What's not told to you is how they had that peace. And you can ask people in the Middle East if Rome was a peaceful empire, and they won't tell you, hell no. Uh, they crucified, they, uh, you know, they, they oppressed, they overtaxed, they abused, they kept other people people in subjection so there was a form of peace but it wasn't true peace but in a in a season the first season um here in america we were under the impression that there is peace and there is goodness and there is prosperity that ended in 1964 with the assassination of jfk and we entered a second season according to this theory and that season is a season of awakening um and this is a season in which um it's a passionate era uh, you know, this is the, the for for us in America, this goes from 1964 to 1984. And, you know, we have Bob Dylan and the Beatles and the hippies and the first PCs um, and like all of this stuff is happening. The first Mac is, is built uh, and this is a period of awakening. So you got the first season is like this high upbeat era. The second season is a time of awakening. It's also a time of nonconformity, hence the, the hippie movement, you know, in which the conformity of the previous generation is now challenged. OK, um, and that uh, era ended in 1984 with the election of Ronald Reagan, re, excuse me, reelection of Ronald Reagan. The third turning um, took, uh, takes us from 1984 to 2008, so 24 years. Um, and this is a season which we call. Are you ready for it? This is a season in which we call, uh, we will call it the unraveling. Yes, the unraveling. Uh, <laughs> the unraveling is is a downcast era. Um, this is from uh, in in America from 1984 to 2008. We saw the fall, fall of social communism. Uh, we saw the Los Angeles riots, the O.J. Simpson trial, um, racial tensions, like the civil rights movement, and what we thought we had accomplished. We started to see in this era that things were not as they seem uh, beginning with the LA riots the OJ Simpson trial started to kind of shine the light on the racist practices practices of uh, police forces in America and then uh, according to these guys this uh, this season this turning ended in 2008 with the financial crisis the uh, particularly the housing market uh, crash and the financial crisis that that created and so now we're in the fourth turning, which begins in 2008 and should last to 2028, give or take. So we're at the kind of the final years of the fourth turning. And then guess what, folks? We get to do it all over again because that's what we did. 
Um, the fourth turning is a crisis era. It's a, it's a, it's a crisis season. It's an era of upheaval. And this is what I started telling my church back in 2014 is like, we are, we are going to see the upheaval. Everything's going to be shaken. Societies, the church, the faith, the financial systems, everything is going to be shaken. It's not going to be like what you heard about, right? It's not like the seven year tribulation where everything's easy to decide. And, you know, it's not like we can pick out this one guy and say, that guy's the antichrist or that woman's the antichrist. And then, you know, have this perfect timeline of like, well, then this is going to happen. And then, you know, frogs are going to come out of the sea and I don't know, swallow us all. (laughs) So because that's kind of the way I was raised to think about it. But um, but what does happen, you know, in in these seasons um, of 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 uh, of upheaval is that everything is shaken and, you know, there's political divisions. We even got a pandemic. (laughs) we have we have a pandemic we can even put on this list of things for the apocalypse um so uh you know and this and again financial the financial crisis has started in 08 we've had ups and downs but like 40 million people don't have jobs right now 40 million people and people who do have jobs are still using food stamps to buy food and the world of 1946 and 1965ish is gone uh, you can't work at uh, at Harris Teeter and and own a house most likely, right? Unless you're in administration or something like that. And I think a lot of people are seeing that. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up. I'm, I could talk about this all day because it's so to me it's so fascinating, right? My my friend of my a friend of mine was telling me earlier about this fiction series. I probably need to check it out called The Wheel of Time, which is like an archetyp archetypical fiction story about what I'm talking about. But at the end of the day, I just think it's important for us. Um, to understand where we're at in our historical moment and um, and to to discern what that means, because you might say, well, if the same thing keeps happening over and over and over again, what the hell's the use? Like. If we're just going to do it again, but I would say that. It is the same cycle happening over and over again, but I believe that there's this intersecting force of <laughs> woo woo of God's grace and and I feel like that 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 force of grace of God's love which is moving through the cosmos right from the creator to the creation and that every time we're making this revolution every time we're making um you know um going through this cycle not making but going through this cycle each time maybe somehow some way we're adjusting and maybe somehow, some way, each adjustment is is bringing us closer to the kingdom of God. Just maybe. Rene Girard, uh, he felt as though the crucifixion of Jesus was um, was a real event, but that the mythology of that event, because it doesn't mean it wasn't a real, real event just because it, it, it uh, had some mythology emerge around it, but that the mythology of the crucifixion event um, was was one of those major shifts and that ever since that point each time we run this cycle we are moving further and further away from the scapegoating to identifying with the victims and i think you i hope you hear i hope some things are clicking in your head because i feel like our generation where we're at right now that is something we've been doing we we have we have been more conscious 
of scapegoating and identifying with the victim rather than victim shaming and scapegoating, we've moved more in a direction uh, that is most likely redemptive. And that is to identify with the victim and not just participate in the scapegoating. And if that is true, if what Gerard says is true, then that's one of those major shifts. And so I feel like, yes, there are these cycles. Yes, there are these things we're going through. But each time we go through them, if we are discerning and we understand the historical moment and we act accordingly, maybe just maybe we can shift this thing. And I know that sounds like a huge task. Like, well, how can I shift this thing? I, I watched a video on YouTube um, um, which a guy was talking about the fourth turning and he at the end of the uh, little summary of, of the fourth turning, um, you know, he kind of tries to answer this question. Like, well, what do we do about it? And his response was, there's a zip, a zip line at my park that is broken that the town doesn't have the money to fix, but I have the tools to fix and the, and the knowledge to fix. And so he was just going to go fix this zip line at his park. And that sounds silly, but I think there's something to that. And I think like when you look at the great traditions of faith, whether it be Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, whatever, there is within all of those, this teaching that it's the small things we do on our own in our own personal lives. It's these small decisions that we make that cause domino effects that each time we run this cycle, we can alter it. Another example of this, and I'm going to shut up. Uh, the book of Judges is and, and Numbers too, but the book of Judges is a great biblical example of this of 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 how we run these cycles over and over again. Uh, I remember in Bible college, that's you know when they taught Judges, that's what they brought up was like, hey, Judges is this book in which the same thing keeps happening over and over and over again. The people who are prosperous. And then they sin against God and then God judges them and then they have to come out of judgment and then they're prosperous, prosperous again. And then they sin against God and then God judges them they have to come out of judgment. And when you look at those stories, that is the cycle. But each time something changes in the mythology, right? Like something changes from Deborah to Samson. Uh, something changes from from from, you know, the the judge who wants to sacrifice his child, uh, you know, as sort of this way to get God's favor or. Um, as sort of proof that he loves God. Um, by the end of like, you know, the judge's era, you have commandments in the in in the Torah against child sacrifice um, because those adjustments were made. And so we have to understand our historical moment and then we have to to some degree explore what changes we can make that might shift this thing more towards justice and goodness and love and grace because this is not the last apocalypse that we will experience most likely hope you've enjoyed this i told you i was going to nerd out on this podcast sometimes if you've made it to 50 minutes thank you let me know what you think